Welcome to Casting Hope, a sermon podcast of Hope Presbyterian Church in Columbus, Ohio. My name is Joe Hack, pastor at Hope, and we are so glad that you are listening in. We would love to connect with you in person at our Sunday gathering. In the meantime, we hope this message points you to Jesus, the reason we gather. And to get the big picture of Scripture. And we started this, what we're calling a table read. We started this table read of the Bible in the fall. And some of you have been with us this whole time. And if you can believe it, we are actually only a few weeks away from finishing all 39 books of the Old Testament. We still have Esther and Chronicles to go. And this morning, we'll be looking at Ezra and Nehemiah. But first, let's pray. Lord, would the words of my mouth and with the meditation of all of our hearts here this morning be pleasing and acceptable to you. You are our rock and you are our redeemer. And Lord, would you by your spirit allow our hearts to see Jesus, that we would encounter him and that he would become more beautiful. That's the miracle that we need this morning more than anything else, is that Jesus would be beautiful to our hearts and that our hearts would sing of him. And so would that happen this morning by your spirit, we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, nearly 20 years ago, I enrolled in a class called Greek 101. This was part of my preparation for ministry and seminary. I got to learn um, the ancient languages of the scriptures. And for most of my friends, this was the hardest part of seminary. I'm a nerd. I actually loved it. But it was, I have to admit, very hard. It is very hard to learn a language. Some of you are learning languages right now. Some of you have learned languages in the past. The hardest part about learning a language, if you've been there, is what Bill Mounts calls the fog. The fog. It's that moment when the teacher introduces a new concept. You've already been tracking with what they have taught you. And you were going right along, but then suddenly your teacher starts to introduce something totally new. And then their words start to sound like the adults, the teachers in Charlie Brown. You know what I'm talking about? Everything that was clear in your mind is now a fog. And it's a struggle to keep learning in the fog. And some students just want to drop out as soon as the fog rolls in. And that's because the fog is uncomfortable. Amen? The fog is very uncomfortable. We would rather camp out in the clear than walk through the fog. And this is true with everything that is worth pursuing. It could be a degree. I gave up pursuing a a degree in business because the fog rolled in in Accounting 201. Okay? For me. Or it could be learning an instrument. I gave up learning piano as a kid because the fog rolled in right about, right after all cows eat grass. (laughs) Like, I give up. We all have our experience with the fog. And if you hang out in church long enough, you've probably experienced this fog with the Lord. Spiritual fog is a fact. This is when our simple, uncomplicated faith gets complicated. When simple answers to very complex questions 
no longer work. When trust gets broken. When your spiritual giants and mentors fail. When the hard reality, the, the hard edges, the sharp edges of suffering shatter your expectations about this world that God made and the story that God is writing. The fog rolls in when you mess up and you hurt other people. It's impossible. It's impossible to ponder it, to think on it. Rolls in when you're disappointed. Disappointed with your faith family. The church. This is when the spiritual fog rolls in. Saints of old called this a dark night of the soul. I don't care what you call it, but this is when faith gets complicated. Well, I believe, actually, that Ezra and Nehemiah is in God's story to help us survive the fog. Because the walk of faith that's described in Ezra and Nehemiah is a complicated thing. It's a foggy faith. On the one hand, it's very joyful. And as we'll see, on the other hand, it's very tearful. On the one hand, it's a story of restoration. And on the other hand, it's a story of feeling and being incomplete. On the one hand, it's regaining lost ground after the exile. And on the other hand, not much ground is actually regained after all. And to see this, I want to do that 30,000 foot flyover in this chapter of God's story, Ezra and Nehemiah. Now, we're combining Ezra and Nehemiah this morning because Ezra and Nehemiah are two separate books in our Bibles. But in the Hebrew scrolls, they're treated as one story. And that's exactly right. It is one single return story in three movements or three waves, three returns. And so chapters one through six of Ezra describe the first return after after decades of exile. A Persian ruler by the name of Cyrus allows Israel to return to Jerusalem. And so this guy named Zerubbabel leads these exiles back and begins this process of rebuilding. And they start with the altar, and they start with the temple. If you remember from a few weeks ago, that thing was brought down by Babylon. Now Babylon's out of the picture, Cyrus comes along, Persia, they're next, and and Cyrus has this idea, why don't we just sort of have a little bit more tolerance of religion? And so he sends everybody back to Jerusalem. And that's the first return. And then 80 years later, we meet Ezra in chapters 7 through 10. He's sort of this model pastor who, and I'm quoting 7.10, set his heart to study the law of the Lord. And not just study the law of the Lord, but to do it and to teach it. And so he led this second wave of exiles back to Jerusalem. And then nearly 100 years... After Cyrus gave the green light to Israel and Zerubbabel, we meet Nehemiah. So he was still hanging out in Persia, Nehemiah was. But after he hears how hard a time the returnees are having in Jerusalem, back back in, uh, in Jerusalem, the new Persian king allows him to return to help rebuild what is broken down. And so Jerusalem was a garden. 
Nehemiah comes back and sort of repairs the trellis of the garden first. And then he sort of helps repair the vine, the people that are growing on the trellis. And so Ezra and Nehemiah, they belong together because they tell one story of return. It's a physical return of God's exiles. It's a missional return. God's lamp is no longer scattered, but it's gathering light again before the watching world on Mount Zion. It's a worshipful return. So God's people can now worship at the temple again. God's people can now experience forgiveness at the altar again. It's spiritual return. So think about this. God's people can now heal from the trauma of siege warfare. They can heal from the trauma of forced evacuation, whatever Babylon did to them and their families. So it's a story of return, and yet, at the same exact time, laced throughout all of this return is disappointment. So the first return, you see it there in my summary, is riddled with opposition throughout it all. The second return is riddled with idolatry, worshiping everything but the true God. And the third return concludes with this rebuilt city, but the people in it are falling short time and time and over and over and over again. In other words, this is not the return that they were expecting when they read in the scrolls of Isaiah and Jeremiah. That the Lord would do this. And so Ezra and Nehemiah is complicated. It's complicated. It's a return to Eden. But the fog is rolled in. They're in the garden, but it feels like they're east of the garden, east of Eden. And I think we see this most clearly, and for me, most poetically even, in Ezra chapter 3. In Ezra chapter 3, it says, starting in verse 11, all people shouted with a great shout. When they praised the Lord. Why? Because the foundation of the temple, the house of the Lord, was laid. Remember, it was torn down. Now it's being rebuilt. But many of the priests and Levites and heads of fathers' houses, old men, so, so people who saw the old temple, wept with a loud voice when they saw the foundation of this house being laid. Though many shouted aloud for joy. So that the people could not distinguish the sound of joyful shout from the sound of people's weeping. Imagine that. For the people shouted with a great shout and the sound was heard far away. So Ezra and Nehemiah, friends, is for anyone who's weeping and rejoicing, smeared together into one minor chord in this life. For God's people who know spiritual disappointment. Who cry out, I believe, Lord, you are doing something. You are, you are faithful and you are rebuilding and yet help my unbelief. This, this can't be it, Lord. This can't, this can't be it. Really? Who are in the fog and who are tempted to drop out. I believe this book Ezra and Nehemiah together, this, this chapter in God's story could help you from dropping out when you experience the fall. How so? Well, I think it does two things. I think it names it, and then I think it helps us by pointing beyond it. 
See, Ezra and Nehemiah tells us two things about faith. It's complicated, it's complicated. And it's Christ-shaped. I want to look first at faith being complicated. Ezra and Nehemiah bears witness to a faith that is complicated with attention. And that tension is specifically a tension of celebration and sorrow. And we see this tension across three major events across these three books, these two books. The new exodus, the new temple, and the new city. See, if you were to look at these two books as telling one story, you have these three huge events, these three huge markers. The return itself, which Ezra compares to an exodus. And so we'll start there. This exodus that Ezra describes Israel's return as is like a second exodus. And like this first exodus, this is a miraculous rescue out of the clutches of an empire, okay? So you can see the comparison. Like the first one, God moves in the heart of an emperor. This time it's not Pharaoh, this time it's Cyrus. And like the first exodus, Israel is enriched by the nations on their journey. So if you look at Ezra chapter 1 verse 6, you see this. These are explicit call-outs to the original exodus. So in chapter 1, verse 6, all who were about them added them with vessels of silver, with gold and goods, and so on. And if you're with us during the first exodus, you know that that's what happened in the land of Egypt. And then God, later on in chapter 8, if you look at that, verse 31, we see that God is supernaturally ensuring their safety as they travel from point A to point B. This is a new exodus. This is a second exodus. And this is something to celebrate. It's, it's pretty uncomplicated in that way. But despite that celebration, there is so much sorrow, as we just saw in Ezra. The second exodus is incomplete. It seems to end like the first one, in the wilderness, worshiping a golden calf. And that's why Ezra ends, if you take a look, and you can just see it, even with the, with the titles. It ends in a very unsettling mass divorce. The newly rescued Israelites started to marry non-Israelites, which by itself, let me be clear, is not an issue. Ezra 6.21, actually, if you take a look at that, says the Passover meal was eaten by the people of Israel who had returned from exile and by the others in the land who had turned from their corrupt practices to the worship of the Lord, the God of Israel. Moses himself married a non-Israelite. So the story of God, in a way, ends with every nation, even. The story of God, as we look at Revelation, ends with every nation worshiping Jesus. So the problem here isn't that, but it's worship. Israel enters the promised land again and starts worshiping the golden calf again. And so this promising new exodus feels like a failure again. It's a fog. I think the second key thing, the temple, that too is complicated with sorrow and with celebration. We already saw the mixed reception of the new foundation of the temple. There was a minor chord of weeping and rejoicing that mingled together so that it was even hard to tell which was which. And that's why chapter 6 verse 16 of Ezra says, And the people of Israel, the priests, And the Levites and the rest of the returned exiles celebrated the dedication of this house of God with 
joy. And so on the one hand, this is all celebration, and yet on the other hand, this new temple falls short. And not just its size in comparison to Solomon's, but it also falls short of God's promise in the prophets. Like Jeremiah, for instance. So Jeremiah said that Israel would have no need for teachers in the new covenant. Because the law would be written on Israel's heart. But immediately after this temple is dedicated, what happens? Ezra comes onto the scene. To do what? To do what? To be a teacher of God's law. And so even at its best, Ezra demonstrates something that is incomplete about this moment in God's story. So in the words of T.R. Wood, the returnees continued to suffer under foreign subjugation. This is what's happening right now. The glory of the Lord had seemingly not returned to the temple. A Davidic king did not sit on the throne. And the vast majority of Israelites remained among the Gentile nations. Only, only a handful came back. Israelites remained among them. More important, the promise of a new heart and a new spirit associated with a new covenant had not materialized in the lives of the chosen people. The new temple is complicated. And the new city, which is Nehemiah's concern... Is complicated too with celebration and sorrow. And so after the walls are rebuilt around Jerusalem and the city is reestablished, we read that Nehemiah, who was the governor, and Ezra the priest, and the Levites who taught the people, said to the people, This day is holy to the Lord. Do not mourn or weep. For all the people wept as they heard the words of the law. And they're saying, don't weep. In verse 10, and they said to him, go your way, eat the fat, drink the wine, the sweet wine, and send portions to anyone that has nothing ready. For this day is holy to the Lord, and do not be grieved. Don't be grieved, for the joy of the Lord is your strength. And so the Levites calmed all the people, saying, be quiet, for this day is holy. Do not be grieved. Do not be grieved. In verse 12, And all the people went their way to eat and drink and to send portions and to make great rejoicing because they had understood the words that had been declared to them. But do you feel the tension? You know? They had to command the joy. They had to say, Yes, I know this is... I know the law as you're reading is causing you to mourn your sin. I know, I know you're in a weeping state of mind, but rejoice. This is good. This is good. Rejoice. See the Lord in this. And so we even have, with the building of this new city, a complicated thing. It implies that there was as much to grieve as there was to celebrate. And while there is much to celebrate in both of these books, and even Nehemiah, Nehemiah, the book itself, Nehemiah, kind of sputters out if you read it. He built so much. But the book ends with Nemo constantly putting out fires. And that's how it ends. It sputters. So Ezra, Nehemiah, friends, it's complicated. It has equal parts joy and sorrow, completion and incompletion. A few years ago, I was invited to return to St. Louis... I mentioned I studied Greek. That's where I studied Greek at seminary. I was invited to return to St. Louis for an all-expense, pretty much paid pastoral retreat for refreshment and other things. And I was looking forward to being refreshed. I was looking forward to this trip and to experiencing the cities, the city that I love and the joy that I had in that city before. But when I got there, it was challenging to say the least. I'm going to spare you the details, but I'll just say this. I was really looking forward to coming home. In fact, I wanted to come home early. Now, I don't know if you've had that experience yourself. Something you've really looked forward to. 
But then as you get to it, and as you experience it, it is absolutely not what you were looking forward to at all. I mean, some people call this anticipation. It's when you reach for a glass thinking it's water and it's milk, and you're like, what on earth is happening? <laughs> Many people describe it disappointment that way, and I think it applies to the life of faith, according to Ezra and Nehemiah. It's complicated. It's complicated with sorrow and joy. It's marked by a feeling of incompleteness. The other day I was sharing with someone who was looking forward to full-time ministry, I heard myself say, the sooner you get okay with ministry difficulty, the better. And I instantly feared as I was saying that, that I was discouraging them from going into ministry. But I believe it's essential to name the fog on the front end. Instead of getting sideswiped by it later on. Are you unsettled? Are you disappointed? Is your prayer life more sorrow than joy? When it was more joy than sorrow? Is it complicated? Has the fog rolled in? In your faith? Well, I think the first gift of Ezra and Nehemiah is the Lord saying, It's okay. You're not alone. This is life east of Eden. The life of faith at this point in the story is what one author calls solemn joy. If you map this out on a graph, this is what you would see. And if you've been with us, you kind of know where this is going. The first line is increasing joy. It's like, yes! (laughs) You know? And the second line that goes up is kind of increasing disappointment. Like, oh, bummer. If you live your life sensitive to only disappointment, you will live life in quadrant one. What some theologians would call an under-realized eschatology. That is a huge mouthful. It's a very complicated way to basically say you're missing out on the heaven that is in earth. In that quadrant one, you might be tempted to shortchange God's gifts that are right in front of you, or His presence, or His work in your life. But if you live life sensitive to only the happy things, you will live in quadrant three, down below. And you will have what some call an over-realized eschatology. Eschatology is another word for just saying, um, basically that day when the Lord makes everything right. And so an over-realized eschatology is basically an overcooked kind of expectation that that moment where all things are made right, where, you know, as Tolkien said, every sad thing will become untrue, like that, we expect too much of that today. Okay, quadrant one is we expect none of it today. Quadrant three is we expect all of it today. One is undercooked, one is overcooked. And if you live in quadrant three, you're expecting too much heaven on earth. And you'll be triumphalistic in your tone, unrealistic in your expectations, and in a matter of time, you will be burnt out. And probably not sitting here. So most of our lives, I think, are lived in this continuum between one and three, barring from Andy Crouch here, 
this continuum of like tears and cheers, tears and cheers, tears and cheers, and you're kind of all over the place on this sliding scale. But Ezra and Nehemiah, I think, in all of Scripture really encourage us as us to live in quadrant four. This space of the both of him, of solemn joy, of joyful realism. It's also the only space, the only corner on that map that acknowledges that we are in a story that is indeed going somewhere. Like Israel, we're not there yet. But that doesn't mean he isn't writing the story and that he doesn't touch ground today in significant and praiseworthy ways. It just means it's complicated. Living in quadrant four is, is complicated. And that's okay. It can be like a funk. And that's okay. Alright, so that's the first tip of Ezra and Nehemiah to you all. What else does Ezra and Nehemiah do for us in the fog? Well, I think it names the fog as we just saw. But number two, ultimately, it points us past the fog. How so? Well, faith is complicated, but faith is also Christ-shaped. Again, each milestone in Ezra and Nehemiah is complicated. The exodus, the temple, the city. But each of these are actually shaped like Jesus. At their finest and in their failure, they point us to Jesus. And so, just taking each in turn again, the second exodus is Christ-shaped. It creates in them and it creates in us, it ought to, a longing for something more. Indeed, someone more. And that's what we get in the next chapter of God's story. Jesus, who brings the true and perfect and forever exodus. From slavery, slavery to Satan, slavery to sin, slavery to the last enemy, death itself. He's the perfect Passover lamb who covers us from judgment. And all we need to do is simply cry uncle and sit underneath the doorposts because his blood protects us from judgment. He's judged in our place. So scholar T.R. Wood explains that on the cross, Jesus experienced in a way an ultimate exile. An exile from God, an exile from his inheritance, an exile from humanity itself in the dehumanizing death that is a crucifixion. But for our sins, not his. He was exiled for our sins and all of Israel's sins, not his. And through his resurrection, okay, he returns. There is an exodus. And this return is full, it's complete, it's final. His resurrection is a preview of that day when all things will be made new. Jesus is the true and perfect exodus. And all of the incompleteness of the exodus, the second exodus, and our life today points to and is shaped as Jesus. And Ezra's second temple is Christ-shaped. I mean, what is the temple anyway? It's the gracious miracle of God with us, of God dwelling with his people and near his people. He doesn't need to, but he wants to. And even though this temple is incomplete, it's not the end of the story. In the next chapter of the story, God decisively draws near in Christ. And we heard Catherine read how the disciple John tells us that God tabernacled or templed among us and Jesus. He described himself as the temple. He is a walking temple. He is God with us. He is, in a way, proof that God wants to dwell among his people. 
And later the Apostle Paul will compare the church to the temple. Why? Because the church is united to Jesus by faith. The true temple. He writes in Ephesians. The household of God. We are the household of God. Built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. In whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him. In him. In him. In him. In him. In him. We are the temple. Why? We are in him. The true temple. And we're being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit. Yeah, if it's incomplete in Ezra and Nehemiah, it is complete in Jesus. And he's building us as a temple. God has decisively drawn near. And he gives us the Spirit. He gives the church the Spirit so that we can actually know his presence among us. And so Nehemiah's new temple is complicated, but it is Christ-shaped and finally the new city is complicated, but it is Christ-shaped. Nehemiah's city is great, but it's riddled if you were to look with injustice and persistent sin. But the failures of this new city all point to a future day when the whole earth will be a new Jerusalem. A holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven. This is Revelation. Having the glory of God, its radiance like a most rare jewel, like a jasper clear as crystal. It had a great high wall. There you go, Nehemiah. With twelve gates. And I saw no temple in the city. Why? Its temple is the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb. And the city has no need for sun or moon to shine in it. Why? The glory of God gives it light. And its lamp is the Lamb. And by its light will the nations walk. And the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. And the gates will never be shut by day. And there will be no night there. All of the major signposts in the Ezra and Nehemiah find their fulfillment in Jesus, in Him alone. Years ago, I was inspired to buy a book by Seth Godin called Lynchpin. Seth Godin is a sort of self-help entrepreneur, author, and he talks about in this book about how complex machinery is often held together by one little part. One little linchpin. So that if you pull the linchpin, the whole thing stops working. And so it's small, seemingly insignificant, but it's indispensable. And because he's a self-help guru, right, he encourages you to be the linchpin. Okay? And this will preach today. This will preach today. Be indispensable. Like, what if that was hope? Wouldn't that be terrible? Hey, y'all, be indispensable. You know what I mean? Like that's that's that is not going to work. That's not going to work. It's inspiring, but it's dangerous. It's dangerous to live as if you are indispensable. If you hold everything together. If you live in fear of getting fired all the time, of losing applause all the time. It's an appealing message, but it is a dangerous message. The true story of the world says there is a linchpin, but it ain't you. It ain't Ezra or Nehemiah either. The linchpin is Jesus. See, Ezra and Nehemiah will help you in the dark night, will help you in the fog, because it names the fog, but ultimately, friends, it points you beyond it to a person whose name is Jesus. You're not the linchpin. He is. He is. He holds it all together. And that's enough for us to stay in the fog. That's enough. 
I grew up among cornfields and um, in Indiana, in rural Indiana, Delaware County. And uh, for big high school games, the farmers would write messages in the cornfields. You, you guys have that growing up? The, 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 the farmers would write messages in the cornfields, and you couldn't see the messages, of course. You know, it's kind of a waste of time, actually, because, like, you can't see them if you're walking in the cornfield or driving in your car or whatever. But if you were in a crop duster, you could see it. And you could take a picture of it, and then we could all look at it and be like, oh, that's cool. And that's how it worked. But on ground level, you don't see it. You don't see it. Things are complicated on ground level. That's where the fog is. But if we would allow the rest of God's story, if we would allow even Revelation at the very end to lift us, even prop us up in a crop duster height, we don't have to go very high, just crop duster height. If we get a little lift, we will see all along that all of the failures in, in this story, even in our story, is cutting an image of Jesus, the linchpin. And if you're in the fog then, I want to say to you, adjust. Adjust your expectations today. Don't expect mountaintop spirituality all day, every day. One, one scholar of Ezra in Nehemiah says that God is at work in these books in very quiet, even non-miraculous ways. It's true. Which means, for you all, you don't need to see God at work to trust that He is at work in your life today. I think this helps you in the fog to cry. Weep when it comes. Weep when it comes. Until Jesus returns, we will weep. And we honor what is broken. We honor what we love when we weep. And when we don't feel like weeping, there are others who are weeping. And so weep with those who weep. And if, let me, Ezra and Nehemiah, to also allow you to sing. Celebrate what and when you can as well. And when you don't feel like it, practice celebration. Because there are others in your midst who are celebrating. And so this complex of, of, of weeping and rejoicing can be to us our script. Weep with those who weep. Rejoice with those who rejoice. And then finally, look. Just look to Jesus. Look to Jesus. Don't rely on the strength of your faith to get you through the fog. Whatever you do. Don't even focus on the strength of your faith. Allow the fog to take your attention off of the strength of your faith and onto the object of your faith. Amen? The linchpin. Jesus. Friends, let's, let's, let's trust this morning that Jesus is in the fog. It's exactly where he is. To riff off a quote I love, Jesus is more reliably present in the fog than he is when things are crystal clear. And so Lord, we come to you this morning entrusting ourselves to that truth. We worship you, Jesus. You are the one. Thanks for listening in. For more resources like this and to learn more about Hope, please visit our website at hopechurchcolumbus.org.